Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Our Next Guest Is. Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers in the corporate and events world and we meet the person behind the name. My name is Michael Pope and I'm here with Carson White from Leading Voice. All right, Carson, over to you. Who is our next guest? Our next guest is a world-class adventurer, motivational speaker, two-time Guinness record holder and a former corporate professional. His best-selling books, Crossing the Ditch and Extreme South, cover his world-first journeys, kayaking from Australia to New Zealand and travelling unsupported to the South Pole. Here today to tell us why he couldn't just get on a plane to New Zealand like everyone else, please welcome our next guest, James Kaz Kastrichan. Hey, Carson. Hey, Michael. Good to see you both. You too, James. Uh, before we get into the guts of the interview, how close can you get to the South Pole with Google Maps before you're out of range and you need to use a compass? That's a really good question. Well, the, the South Geographic Pole is where we went to. So that's like the bottom of the world. Then the, uh, the compass actually points to the South Magnetic Pole. And that's uh, that actually sits somewhere or halfway between Antarctica and Adelaide. And it's actually moving north towards Adelaide. So within a, about 100 years or so, all compasses or south on the compass is actually going to point to Adelaide. Adelaide will get a life. It will get a life. Correct. For the first time in, in its history, everyone want to go to Adelaide. Stop it. <laughs> I'm ex-Adelaide. Only I can do bag jokes about Adelaide. James, obviously we just spoke about the South Pole, but really your adventure career started with a little trip across the Tasman. Tell us, how did that all come about? In my early 20s and my late teens, I was a real geeky, very unsure of myself kind of kid. Uh, I did what I was meant to do, went to uni, started as a chartered accountant, so working big four chartered accountancy. But my passion and love in life was always adventure. And through my early 20s, that's where I started to find myself. You know, I really didn't fit in going out and partying and clubbing and all that kind of stuff. I really loved adventure. And through my early 20s, those expeditions started to get bigger and then on a small little paddle across Bass Strait, so from mainland Australia and Tassie, um, I said to my best mate, Jonesy, mate, can you imagine paddling a similar distance to the Murray River? That's about 2,500 kilometres, which we'd paddled a few years earlier and in a uni break, about over 49 days. You reckon it's possible to paddle a similar distance, but all the way across to the ditch? And uh, yeah, cutting a long story short, after four years of planning, uh, we found ourselves out there paddling from Australia to New Zealand. Did you realise the difference that in the Murray River, there's a bank about 20 metres just over there, whereas the one that you did, th there's no safety net, is there? No safety net. We were completely out there alone. And unfortunately, we hadn't taken into account little factors like the fact that I get uh, quite badly seasick and Jones is <laughs> claustrophobic. So it was much more sensible to pull over on the shore on the Murray River and fish for some Murray cod than it was to be out in the middle of the Tasman Sea. Oh, my Lord. Look, I've seen you in performance, James, and I'm going to sing your praises throughout this conversation. Just tell us that moment on that journey when the, the winds and the waves and the currents and all of that actually took you back towards Australia in the wrong direction. So initially, we made some phenomenal progress as we pushed out away from the coast of Australia. By 19 days, we're over halfway across the Tasman Sea. We could not believe the progress we're making. End of the day, we stopped paddling. Uh, got back in the cabin, started talking to our support team on our satellite phone, and they said, guys, you're about to be smashed by a massive storm. And over the next four days, we got hit by waves up to 12 to 13 metres high. We had winds up to 100 kilometres an hour. And those winds and that storm pushed us into a big circular whirlpool in the middle of the Tasman Sea. And for two weeks, we went round and round in circles in the middle of the Tasman. We just could not escape it. And so we tried to paddle out of it. We'd push hard through the day. We'd drift back through the night. 
And we ended up having to paddle 150 kilometers back towards Australia <laughs> just to push out of that current so that we could loop out of it and then go for another shot. The first thing that springs to my mind is death. Really doing something like this is obviously high risk. So how do you put uh, that fear out of your mind as part of your psychological preparation for something like this? Look, uh, the death of another kayaker six months before our departure absolutely devastated us. Uh, Andrew was more experienced and had done more in the outdoors than I could ever dream about. And for the first few weeks after his disappearance, it just knocked us for an absolute six. And for a number of weeks, we'd given away the project. Our friends and family said, guys, it's just not worth it. And for a while, we felt that same way too. And at that same time, we were meant to be paddling out there at that time, so uh, 12 months prior, but our kayak wasn't working. So we had to go through a rebuild, redesign. It just felt like the whole project was over. But after a while, we realized as tragic as it was, the plan that we put together, the risk management work, the strategy that we had, we had absolute confidence in. There's this expression, um, E plus R equals O. So when an event happens, plus the response equals the outcome. Sometimes events happen that you can't control, but the one thing you can control is your response and that dictates your outcome. And in this case, um, we just focused on our planning, our risk management work, and that's what got us through. It's interesting, the parallels with that experience with uh, Richard Branson. I'm seeing a doco series on him at the moment. And two days before his balloon attempt from Japan to America, a similar attempt was made and the Japanese uh, balloonist um, perished during that. And, and that threw him. And like yourself, it really threw them, but they continued on. So as if that experience wouldn't have been enough for, for 10 men, you and a mate decided to tackle South Pole in, and in a particular way. Yeah, so Antarctica, after we crossed the Tasman, Antarctica always represented the Charlie Chocolate Factory of Adventure for me. Um, you know, <laughs> as a kid, I'd never been interested in reading about Frodo Paggins or Harry Potter Wing Little Wander Around. You know, I'd always wanted to read about explorers in Antarctica. And so coming back from the Tasman, it was a perfect launching opportunity to do a big expedition down there. No one had ever successfully skied from the coast of Antarctica to the South Pole and back out again unsupported. In the prior 12 years, there'd been five attempts, everyone had failed. And so it was a bit of a jewel in polar travel and in the exploration world. And so we thought, let's give it a crack. And a spoiler alert, you succeeded. Yes, we lost a lot of weight down there. We had an absolutely phenomenal trip. Uh, things didn't go as planned, but we did get there in the end. So how did the uh, crossing the ditch journey help you prepare for the uh, the Antarctic journey? Coming from Australia, we hadn't really ever dealt with the cold before. You know, even for those of us that live in Melbourne or have been up to the Aussie Alps skiing, at the middle of winter, it just does not get cold in this country. And so, uh, you know, we didn't physically have the conditions to train. But the Tasman Sea Crossing was, I think, about the best training we could ever have got because it trained the mind. And mm -hmm. on these big expeditions, uh, yes, you're pushing yourself physically very hard and there's sleep deprivation and you know physical discomfort, but it's a journey in the, in the mind and it's a journey of how far can you keep on going and that really comes down to your headspace. Well, you've cleverly moved us into the conversation now about the lessons that you learned from these experiences. I'm sure when you were doing them, your focus was on the task and the goals. But in retrospect, you've really brought out some fantastic learnings that can be applicable to business, yes, but just into life. Can you just whet our appetites with a couple of those? Yeah, sure. So it was quite interesting. That was never the motivation with these expeditions. In fact, oh. when we arrived in New Zealand, uh, we didn't even have a pair of shoes waiting for us. We'd maxed out our credit cards. We had absolutely nothing going for us. I'm pretty embarrassed to say with your audience that I'd never even heard of the corporate speaking world before. And so there was a little bit of interest about it. And we're like, how cool is this? We'll get a few gigs for a few months and then I'll have to get back to being a grown up and being an accountant. 
And so it really came about quite organically. In the years since, I've heard plenty of keynote speakers up on stage say that they dreamt about that from childhood. But yeah, I didn't even know it was a world that existed. And so fortunately, in the last uh, 12, 13 years, I've been very lucky to be a part of it here in Australia and overseas. And it's been really great to take some of those journeys and those anecdotes and those stories and, and make it really applicable. Because at the end of the day, not everyone's going to want to paddle a kite. In fact, no one's going to want to paddle a kite from Australia <laughs> to New Zealand or ski to the South Pole and back. It's pretty ridiculous and pretty stupid at the end of the day. But there are some yeah fascinating uh, lessons that we can all take around uh, planning, around execution, around teamwork, around yeah, high-performance teams. And that's what I really like to, uh, I guess, get into when I'm up on stage these days. Some of the audience that might be listening may have seen you in the early days of your keynote speaking when there was yourself and obviously your adventure partner, Jonesy. You both spoke together, but how did that morph then out into doing your own keynote speaking by yourself? As a kid at school, I couldn't get up in front of a class and speak in front of 10 people. I'd get so nervous. And so to to found my life as a corporate speaker and as a motivational speaker seems a little bit ironic. Um, In those early days, I guess where we felt most comfortable was just telling our story. You know, we'd get up there, we'd tell some great stories, we'd make people laugh and we'd cry. And that was kind of what we were great at. You know, those, those motivational slots, open closer conference, after dinner, lunchtime presentations. But I guess what I've really wanted to tap into in the last probably five or six years is coming back to that world of consulting. It's about taking the lessons from these big expeditions and being able to give, I guess, um, takeaways, learnings, and things that people can implement both in their personal and professional lives. And that's what I'm all about these days. As I mentioned, I've seen you in flight and listeners should know that you're more than the speaking voice. You've got fantastic maps and photographs and visions supporting you behind. But what really stood you out as a keynote speaker of anyone that I've seen in many years is the interactivity that you have with the audience and in the sense that you set them to a task, don't you? Yeah, so what I've actually done is, I guess post-COVID and as we've come out of that crazy phase of what happened a few years ago, what I started to see at conferences is that the last thing you want an audience to do is sit there for two or three days and just listen to panels, listen to the great speakers up on stage and not interact with one another. Given that there's that work from home component these days and most people haven't connected for a very long time, what I did was I took that keynote and I created, I guess, a choose your own adventure style experience for the corporate room. So to use the different tables, the different groups in the room to interact with one another, to actually live out a world first expedition. And so not only do they get the same motivation, inspiration, messaging they would out of the keynote, but it's very tactile and very hands-on. So they get to live it themselves. And it's really effective. You know, I was there and participating and the buzz in the room about it and the, oh no, we've lost one of our team members and all that kind of stuff was really impressive. If I'm the client uh, and you're talking to me and I I really just want the keynote, what would you say to me to try and convince me to do the the full workshop where, you know, what are the, what are the key things that I would get that would, I wouldn't get in the keynote? Yeah. So more than happy to do a keynote, which I do still plenty of as a keynote speaker, if you're up there for 45, 55 minutes or so, typical kind of slot with a five minute, 10 minute Q and A at the end, there's only so much impact you can have on an audience. There's only so many takeaways that an audience can take. And so in a lot of ways in that classical 45 minute slot, it really is all about entertainment and engagement. Mm-hmm. One of the key things about this interactive piece is that there's some really strong takeaways that people can go, right, I can apply this to my personal life. I can apply this to my team life as soon as I get back in the office. So the adventure becomes a metaphor for how do we stay aligned as a team, make effective decisions in an environment that's constantly changing and keep everybody on that journey as we're progressing along. And so that's what the, the interactivity is all about. 
I remember one of the standout moments from your South Pole trip was the final, was it a day or something, when you partnered up with someone else without giving away too much. Can you just pray see that experience and most importantly, what the lesson was for you from that? Yep. So, Michael, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. So if anyone <laughs> doesn't want to get the the conclusion of the Antarctic expedition, maybe just scrub it forward for well, 30 seconds. Okay, well... No, <laughs> Can I say it or not, Michael? No, jump jump over what happened and just tell us the learnings, which will actually excite us to find out what happened. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so essentially we found ourselves competing against a Norwegian for this world first. Oh, you're telling Being everyone like now. You're telling uh, everyone. No, no, I'm not going to tell... I'm not actually going to tell what happened. Okay. But, the learning out of the whole thing, and as we got to that final day of the expedition after 89 days in Antarctica, having lost close to 56 kilos of weight between the two of us, was um, we can achieve so much more in this world together than we can on our own. And so often we see and uh, we perceive there to be competition out there. But uh, yeah, if we look for ways to collaborate, share victories, encourage each other forward, we can achieve so much more together than we can just on our own. See, Michael, I didn't tell the story. No, you didn't. You didn't. But the, way you, <laughs> the way you sum that up there is what I mean. The take-homes apply to life, not just to business. Is there a key one, maybe in the planning stage, you said, for the kayak trip, that you directly connect with business in terms of planning? Probably the most important message that I share with audiences is that 99% of success of these expeditions in the planning phase and 1% in the execution. And a lot of people look at me as a risk taker and someone that is, you know, um, reckless with his life and just wants to go on these crazy expeditions. But I actually look at myself as quite risk adverse. And these expeditions are all about controlling those risks and then executing on a very carefully planned plan, as opposed to just getting out there and um, and being reckless with your life. No one will argue that uh, planning is absolutely fundamental, as particularly in the, in the two journeys, adventures you've had. But all the planning in the world doesn't allow you to deal with, uh, I guess, a change in environment, a change in circumstances, something that's thrown at you. So what do you say to people? How do they deal with that changing environment, given that it doesn't matter how much planning you've done, anything could be thrown at you? How do you then deal with that? Yeah, it's a great question. Look, at the end of the day, adventure is an activity with an unknown outcome. And that's the whole thing about it. You're embarking on these expeditions. You don't know what you're going to be faced with. But what all that planning does is it gives you a toolkit, it gives you resources to be able to adapt effectively to that change and that environment that's that's uh, moving around you. Without that planning in place, when you're faced with a challenge or an obstacle that you weren't expecting, then that could have been game over. I'll give you a quick example of that. When we're paddling across the Tasman Sea, we had a water maker that was pumping um, salt water to fresh water, so we got fresh water. 10 days into the journey, the electric motor that was in it Carked and killed it, so it died and went completely silent. So we've still got over 2,000 kilometres to go and our water maker's not working. Sorry, James, this is when Carson and I would have turned around and gone back. And that's a sensible thing to do. In terms of planning, preparing us for that eventuality, for all those critical systems on board the kayak, we had one, if not two or three levels of redundancy mm -hmm. that enabled us to adapt to those situations that would have been a game over for us. And so that's what the planning was all about, finding those redundancies and finding those systems to enable us to be able to adapt when things didn't go as planned. Was one of those um, backup systems turning your own urine into water? We didn't get to that part, uh, Michael, but uh, yeah, we had three levels because water was probably the most critical system on board the kayak. We had three levels uh, on board and uh, no, we weren't going to drink our urine out there. I'm really sorry, Michael.
No, no, please don't apologize. <laughs> so you've also moved from the stage at a conference into myadventuregroup.com.au. Uh, tell us about that and the offerings that you make to corporates. Yeah, so a number of years ago, I was, I was observing, obviously as a keynote speaker, what every conference was doing with their team building activities about how to develop teams or how to get connection or how to build trust or how to build those relationships between team members. And I was looking at a lot of these activities and thinking, you know, I've got young kids. These are the stuff that I do at a six-year-old's birthday party. What's it in, a, in the corporate world? And then I looked at those relationships I had with those people that I'd done authentic adventures with, and they were such deep connections and such deep bonds. I was like, I wonder if I could create something for corporate groups to be able to use adventure as a tool to bring them together. It was more of a hypothesis back then. I didn't know if it would work. But uh, in the last few years, I've been able to build up to a really successful little business where we uh, have a beautiful glamping camp up in the Blue Mountains. So we still have that base level of luxury that corporate groups expect. But then we use adventure as a tool to build out capabilities and different frameworks around trust, connection, leadership. And it's amazing, you know, when someone's showing real authentic human emotion on the side of a cliff, it doesn't matter what's going on in the office, people see right through them to the core of that human being. They encourage them, they help support them. And then when they're back around the campfire that evening, it's incredible the deep level of conversation then starts to happen. And that's what it's all about, using adventure to build teams. What size numbers do you take for that? So we've had some very small groups and I was lucky enough back in January to have Bill Gates and a few of his friends up in the Blue Mountains. Cool. All the wow. way up to uh, just over, uh, we had our biggest group ever in uh, in May and we had 115 people in base camp. So we had um, yeah, a big city with 70 odd tents down there and bathrooms and showers and chefs and all that kind of stuff down there. So yeah, we had, we do the small, very small bespoke leadership teams, but we also do bigger groups as well. You casually threw in there, you just had Bill Gates come up to you. How do you get Bill Gates to come to one of your adventure camps? I guess when he was here in Australia, looking for uh, unique experiences that money can't buy. And so it really was about giving him an incredible experience in an environment that he was interested in. And it definitely was probably one of the highlights of my life, uh, spending the day with him and um, and uh, talking to him and sharing my adventures and, and sharing the Blue Mountains with him as well. So sorry, when you say money can't buy, these camps are free. <laughs> <laughs> You're invited anytime, Michael. Yeah, Always have you up here, any day of the week. Is there one more adventure for James Kostrician? I would absolutely love to keep doing the big adventures. On the back of Antarctica, I guess I was really faced with this challenge. The trips themselves are the easy part. You know, my wife would absolutely give me a leave pass. I'd um, head off to Antarctica I'd cry a little bit, lose a bit of weight, and I'd come back, uh, you know, three months later and, and probably wouldn't have missed me a time to take out the rubbish. That's <laughs> the easy part. It's the four years beforehand where you've got to be incredibly selfish. It's all about you. It's about the trip. It's about the expedition. Um, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you are all in. And um, I really want wanted to have a family with my wife, and uh, I didn't want to miss the kids growing up. And so, yeah, my life really these days is all about my kids and my family. And that's why corporate speaking works out so well and also being able to have adventures with other people. But yeah, the big expeditions for me aren't going to happen while the kids are still young. It sounds like you've got your priorities in exactly the right order. James, thanks for your time today. As I said, I've seen you and you are in my top three, I reckon, presenters 
And the reason for that is that you leave a visceral and palpable impression on the audience. You know, emotionally we connected. The AV support that you have along with the, the words and wow, that's the guy in front of me who's, who's done this that I'm hearing about, stays with an audience for a really long time. All the very best with my adventure group and I do look forward to introducing you on stage sometime in the future. Can't wait to see you there. Thank you. Thanks, James. And with Michael's recommendation of top three speakers in Australia, there is no reason why you shouldn't get James to come and talk at your next conference or event. And if you want to do that, please go to www.myadventuregroup.com.au. You've been listening to Our Next Guest Is, brought to you by Carson White from Leading Voice and MC Michael Pope. You can hear all our guests on iTunes or simply visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break.